This series contains occasional references to abuse, sexual misconduct, and other topics that some people might find disturbing. This episode includes references to racist violence. It's 1963. On East 59th and 5th in Manhattan, at the corner of Central Park, Marie Catherine Ox is one of many hopeful young women who have responded to an advertisement. Yes, it's true. Attractive young girls can make two to three hundred dollars a week at the fabulous New York Playboy Club. Two hundred dollars is around eighteen hundred today. And there are plenty of women in line with Marie. Women like Jackie Nett and Catherine Lee Scott, who we met in the previous episode. And they're all looking for a glamorous, exciting, and well-paid new job. But Marie is not really Marie. Her real name is Gloria Steinem. And before she became a famous second-wave feminist, she's undercover at the New York Playboy Club. At the audition, Steinem is nervous. She's 28, older than the age specified in the ad. At any moment, she could be asked to provide ID that says she's Marie. ID that doesn't exist. The interviewer is indeed surprised. She says Steinem doesn't look 24 at all. She actually looks much younger. To my amazement, I passed right through and ended up in this costume that was so tight that a man would have a cleavage. Steinem is assigned a bunny mother, given the bunny Bible, and taught the famous bunny dip. When you notice that she is doing what we call a bunny dip, there you notice that she is bending at the waist rather than keeping her hips tucked under. Okay, once again, let's see the bunny dip done just so. She spends two weeks in bunny school, working the floor, serving drinks, taking coats, and handling customers. Gloria's piece is published as a two-part tell-all. Its title, A Bunny's Tale. Her reporting describes a very different experience of the Playboy world than the one we've heard about so far. An experience that challenges the image Hugh Hefner was trying so hard to project. What lengths will Hefner go to to defend his vision of sex and luxury? And how will he hold on to the power that selling that fantasy has given him? I'm Amy Rose Spiegel, and this is Power, Hugh Hefner, The Rise and Fall of Playboy. Last time, we heard about how Hugh Hefner launched Playboy magazine and the Playboy clubs with a winning formula of beautiful women and sophisticated living. He connected with a huge audience who wanted to buy into his version of the good life. Both the clubs and the magazine were a gigantic hit. So it wasn't surprising when Playboy also attracted attention from skeptics, like Gloria Steinem, a reporter working for an arts magazine called Show. After she works in the clubs for a couple of weeks, Steinem reports that the top money promised in the classified ad wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Bunnies have to pay for their costumes and makeup, including mandatory false eyelashes, and their docked pay for infractions like messy hair. And Steinem says she only meets one person who made $200 in a week. 
Steinem reports that there are undercover detectives working in the club. They're trying to rabbit out any bunnies who are breaking the rules. The biggest of these rules is no dating customers, except for the VIPs. Another related form of intense surveillance is that new bunnies are required to have an internal examination for STIs. We're used to getting these kinds of tests off of company time now, but imagine instead that your boss is making you do it in order to wait tables. Steinem later said that Hefner wasn't upset about her piece. In fact, he ditched the mandatory STI tests because of it. He wrote to her, your beef about the physical given to the girls before they start work at the club prompted my eliminating it. Despite the disconcerting aspects of Steinem's reporting, many of the bunnies I've talked to are dismissive of her account. She worked in a very different world than what we saw. She had an agenda. She was looking for whatever she was looking for. We were there at the same time. We experienced the same things at the same time. I can only tell you that we viewed it very differently. No matter how you look at it, in the 60s, workplace harassment was widespread and very open. But Catherine Lee Scott says that, unlike other industries, the Playboy clubs actually had rules in place to safeguard women. Working as a Playboy bunny, I was working in a safer, more protected environment than any of my friends who were working in these other jobs. A young woman working as a temp secretary does not get to say, please, sir, don't touch the typist. Amid criticism that Playboy was sexist, Hefner insisted that couldn't be further from the case. To hear him tell it, Playboy was fighting for sexual freedom for men and women. In 1962, he wrote a lengthy screed laying out the Playboy philosophy, which he deemed the Emancipation Proclamation of the Sexual Revolution. He wrote it on a lot of speed. He directed a lot of Playboy at that time, while taking uppers all night and philosophizing. Though we are sometimes accused of having a dehumanizing view of women, our concept actually offers the female a far more human identity than she has had historically in the Western world. Whether they were considered creatures of the devil or placed on a pedestal, their status in our anti-sexual society has always been of an object. Hefner's grand claims about liberating women, the smiling bunnies in their skimpy outfits, the spreads portraying the hottest musicians in clothes, all this came together to position Playboy as part of a new, fun-loving, sexually open America. I was living in the club, but I was also part of the evolving world. It wasn't a separation because we were in the hub of the women revolution. And there was another element to the progressive face of the clubs that was especially important to Jackie Nett, carrying with her the memories of a childhood in Mississippi. I never felt anything about color there. I grew up with this intensity of people being lynched and being afraid and growing up under segregation. I grew up under that. And that's one of the things of Hefner. Hefner did not like segregation. When Southern Playboy clubs segregated their staff or clientele, 
Hefner forced them to change their policies or bought back the franchises at great expense. You have to remember that Hugh Hefner was one of the first in Hollywood and the entertainment industry to integrate his sets. This is Dr. Mireille Miller-Young, historian and author of A Taste for Brown Sugar, Black Women in Pornography. He had uh, performers like Sammy Davis Jr. and others perform on the Playboy Penthouse show. He supported the civil rights movement by offering $25,000 rewards for the murderers of the three civil rights workers who were killed in Mississippi. In 1962, Playboy's first published interview was Alex Haley speaking with Miles Davis about Davis's personal encounters with racism. Haley's Playboy interviews, including a groundbreaking conversation with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., became iconic in their own right. And so I think there was a bit of uh, support in the Black community for Playboy magazine and Hugh Hefner. They were watching as he integrated Playboy clubs. Don't forget, you know, the majority of Black people who lived in the South at the time uh, were completely living under a terrorist state. Little girls were being bombed in churches. Black people were still being lynched and kept from voting. And here you had someone like Hugh Hefner, a real icon of Chicago, bringing not only that city together, but a kind of presentation of an integrated, more racial, harmonious future that I think Black men felt somewhat included in. But where were Black women in this picture, even literally? In 1969, Jeannie Bell became one of the first Black women featured in the magazine. I had a great looking body, why not? Why not do it, you know? And he was paying me for it, hey, I was, I was happy. Four decades on, and Jeannie is still achieving firsts. So now, I am the, the Guinness World Record holder three times for the oldest competitive rope skipper. I mean, if somebody's gotta do it, why not me? Way before she was a competitive jump roper, she was a young person with a keen interest in making money. I remember getting my first job at 13 years old. I discovered you can work, you can get money for it. <laughs> I got addicted. A few years later, she finds out about an unusual sort of opportunity, one that seems particularly promising. And I was looking at in this paper and I was reading it and it says, who would be Miss America? And I said to myself, I would be Miss America. The first step toward becoming Miss America was to become Miss Houston. So Jeannie mails in an application. And then I got a letter back and said that I was accepted to be in the pageant. And when I went to the meeting, I didn't think about black or white. I just went, you know, I just did what they told me to do. So I, came, I went to the meeting and then I realized that I was the first person to ever enter that contest before. Jeannie is surprised. She figures out that she's the first Black woman to enter Miss Houston. I had so much fun. Everyone was nice to me. It was just really great. Jeannie wins first runner-up in Miss Houston. She loves the experience and goes through to Miss America. And it's at that pageant that a photographer approaches her. He walked up to me and asked me if I wanted to model. And he would pay me $50 an hour. I said, $50 an hour? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Why not? 
$50 an hour is almost $400 today. And then he told me it would be new shooting, right? I said, he said, this would be for the Playboy magazine. I said, okay, well, you know, Playboy's never had a black woman in there and they're not gonna pick me. Unexpectedly though, she got confirmation. She was going to be the centerfold in 1969. He told me, he said, they, they, they want you to be in the magazine. I say, oh, cool. I didn't believe him. I says, I'll believe it when I see it. You know, I'm like, I'm a kind of person. You got to show me first, you know. <laughs> Was that something that you knew other people doing? Did you know other women who posed nude? No, or was that... I, I, no. I'm in okay. Texas, you know, you don't see things like that. <laughs> you don't see people posing nude. I was telling everybody and all my friends in Texas, oh, I'm going to be in the Playboy magazine, you know. But no one would believe me because they never had a black woman in the, in the magazine. Could you imagine that? No one would believe me. While Jeannie loved the pay that came with modeling, she liked her alone time. And she didn't get too involved in the Playboy culture. I was kind of like afraid because coming from Texas where everyone would go to bed early at night, California, you stay up all night long. People wonder where everybody's going, you know? And in 69, this when people were the women were wearing um, topless things. You know, they wouldn't wear a bra and stuff, you know. And the guys were having the, the long beard. It kind of scared me. <laughs> I kind of, like, stayed home a lot. But she did sometimes visit the Playboy Mansion to attend movie nights. One time, Hafner gives her a special tour. Well, I remember him in a robe. And then I, and I questioned myself, geez, why is he in a robe, you know? It's kind of weird. Jeannie is slightly freaked out, but decides to let it pass. She introduces herself. Hi, Mr. Hefner. How are you? <laughs> and he laughed at me. <laughs> he said, wow, you are from the South, you know? I say, yes, sir, I'm from the South. <laughs> so Jeannie sits down on the sofa, and then... Hefner has something else he wants to show her. And then he took me to show me his bedroom. And I says, oh, that's interesting. So he showed me, he's got this, this round mattress in his bedroom. And he would push buttons on the bed, on the headboard, and the bed would, would like go around, like rotate around. It's the most Hefner thing I can imagine. A spinning round bed. And, it was, and it sometimes it would vibrate, you know. I said, wow, i never seen a bed like this before. <laughs> and he says, yeah, this is one of a kind. I said, oh, really? And then I kind of like started walking towards out of the room a little bit. I didn't feel that much comfortable to be in there. After he showed you the bed, you were trying to make, trying to make an exit? Yeah, get out. Yeah. Time to get out. Yeah, because I didn't know what to do after that. <laughs> so I got out. Do you think he was feeling you out to see if you were interested to stay? I don't know, because, you know, like a naive person, maybe and maybe not. You know, maybe he just showing it to me. I don't know. I have no idea. I didn't want to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a very nice. I loved him. He was a great guy. I had so many moments like these in my conversations with people who knew Hefner. People would back Hefner up right after telling me about him doing something intimidating, off-putting, or sometimes straight-up indefensible. It speaks to Hefner's deft handling of his own reputation that people are still careful to protect his character. 
A lot of that feels linked to how associating with Hefner could massively change people's lives. A few months after Jeannie Bell's centerfold, she became the first Black person on the cover of Playboy and went on to have a high-flying career as an actress and model. And, of course, jump rope champion. While Hugh Hefner began featuring Black women in the pages of Playboy during the 1960s and taking steps to desegregate the clubs, there weren't any Black people in positions of power at the magazine. And it takes a long time for this to change. After the break. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hugh Hefner was considered a very liberal publisher. He had a reputation as a supporter of the civil rights movement, but uh, there were no African-American editors working for Playboy. And um, as I recall, Jesse Jackson, one of our prominent civil rights leaders, publicly criticized Hefner for being a a liberal, but not having any African-Americans working in any positions of uh, authority or power or influence at Playboy. This is Dr. Walter Lowe, Jr. In 1978, he became the first full-time Black editor at Playboy. I wanted to be a writer since I was 12 years old. (laughs) My father discouraged me, which I, I think was rational, He said, black writers don't make any money. His father's advice didn't deter him. He started writing freelance, and in his early 20s, he landed a job at the Chicago Sun-Times. Despite the challenges of being one of the first black people in almost every job he took. It was like being a single chocolate chip in a box of vanilla wafers. His star began to rise. So when Hefner is looking for a new editor... Walter is on his list. Someone called me at home and said, would you be interested in interviewing for a position of editor at Playboy? And I was flabbergasted. I didn't know how they had decided to put me on their list of possible candidates, but of course I agreed. Walter had read Playboy and had a good idea of the magazine's approach to journalism. There was an old joke about the people would say to, you know, a man who would read Playboy would always say, I read it for the articles. And people would always laugh and say, sure you did. But I had read Playboy mainly for specific articles by specific writers. The editorial standards were very high. 
And the money was good, too. The magazine was able to pay three times as much in salary as you could make as a full-time newspaper reporter at a top newspaper. I knew right away that I was going, as we say, to get paid. But Walter discovered there were many, many hoops to jump through in order to secure his place at Playboy. And then uh, had to go through the vetting process, which took several weeks, uh, several interviews, which I later found out none of the white editors had gone through. When I finally got there and made friends with some of the editors uh, there and told them about this process, they said, Jesus Christ, you know, we didn't, we didn't go through any of that. Eventually, uh, they called me and said, you've got the job. And uh, that was the beginning of my career at Playboy. He had achieved what, to his father, had seemed impossible. His comment after I started working at Playboy was basically, you know, things have changed. Walter began as an assistant editor and soon moved up the ladder, becoming associate editor and then senior staff writer. The Playboy image the magazine and Hefner projected was pure champagne and glamour. But to Walter, it was about the stories. They would always have the latest stuff from John Le Carre. They would have fiction by John Updike, Joyce Carol Oates. I mean, just the best fiction writers in the United States. Everything was, was first class. Really, the editorial department was a world unto itself where the focus was just on producing the best journalism we could possibly produce, given all of the resources that were available to us at that time. You know, we were also aware that a lot of Playboy's appeal was not what we were doing. The pictures... <laughs> were, uh, you know, part of the selling point of the magazine. And that, I mean, that was just an inescapable fact. Walter was able to write and commission pieces that explored social justice and issues related to race. He assigned the singular writer James Baldwin to investigate an unsolved string of murders in a piece called Evidence of Things Unseen. Having an article in Playboy about Black children being murdered in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, was not the type of fare that your average Playboy reader would automatically gravitate toward. But I convinced the editor that we ought to do something about it. Getting an article like that into Playboy, I consider one of my finest accomplishments. Hefner himself wasn't intimately involved with most of the editorial aspects of Walter's work. He lived in his own world. He did not <laughs> mingle with his editorial staff very much. He very rarely stopped into the editorial office. But once in a while, Walter had no choice but to visit Hefner's world. Like the time he was told he had to fly to the mansion and write a piece on one of the playmates. 
No matter how high and mighty you were, you know, you still had to, at least once or twice a year, do what we considered sort of the grunt work. This grunt work, as Walter put it, often required some FaceTime at headquarters with Hefner and his coterie. I was wearing a suit and tie and tried to look professional. And the playmate I was supposed to be interviewing was out there in the pool. And he said, just go out and introduce yourself. There were three or four playmates in the pool, and they were all nude. And I'm standing there, you know, dressed like I'm going to Sunday school with my cassette. And there are these naked women swimming around and laughing and throwing a beach ball. And I just was like, what What the hell am I doing? I, how the hell did I get in this situation? For Walter, this is not your standard assignment. And then Hefner comes down to say hi. And he says, It's hot outside. Why don't you just take off your suit, put on some swimming trunks, and get in the pool. And you can relax and the... Young ladies will feel more comfortable talking to you. And I was like, I'm not going to take off my suit and put on swimming trunks. I just got here. And he laughed and he said, oh, you know, this is the mansion. A man came down, one of Hefner's staff, and told Walter once again he looked out of place. And Hefner was insisting that he get changed. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So I left and I went and met Alex Haley for dinner, which was a wonderful experience. This encounter neatly sums up how that era of Playboy could feel really contradictory. Walter went from like this farcical experience of his boss demanding he put on a bathing suit and get in the pool with a playmate to a dinner with an auspicious, serious writer renowned for his work on race. Still, The next time Walter visited the mansion, he wasn't able to wiggle out of the impromptu pool party. When I went the second time, I figured, okay, this is what the deal is. I think anyone who went to the mansion was part of settling in to enjoying the experience was swimming in the pool. And so I went into the pool with my trunks and and I had to interview a playmate, and she's like, oh, let's go into the grotto, and the grotto is, you know, is a grotto, you know, it's dark and red lights and stuff. I don't know. It didn't stay in there very long. This is part of what you got to deal with. You're getting paid. You're given an opportunity to work with some, you know, really fabulous writers, authors, musicians, actors, playwrights, and you got to come and sort of pay homage to the Playboy lifestyle for 90 minutes or two hours or whatever. And, you know, when you drove through those gates that led up to the Playboy mansion, you were in a different world. You were in Hugh Hefner's world on his turf. So... What was Walter's take on the man behind that world? I think he was a sincere liberal. He considered himself somewhat of a philosopher. So I think he saw himself as, if not radical, certainly somewhat of a provocateur. And that fit very well with his support of the civil rights movement of particularly African-American entertainers, 
writers, musicians. I don't think that was artifice. In another area of social progress, Hefner was more clearly behind the times. Hefner was never comfortable with feminism because if the voices of feminism prevailed, he was going out of business. When Playboy first emerged in the you know late 1950s, America was a much more conservative, even prudish culture in regard to sex. A lot of the Playboy philosophy was, sex is fine. You know, when the feminist movement uh, emerged, was, you know, in direct conflict with the portrayal of women in Playboy. It was also, in, in a sense, in direct conflict with Hef's personal lifestyle. I guess you could say that, that in that sense, Hef became a reactionary. I think in terms of race, his interests and support of the civil rights movement was sincere, but I think in terms of just really from a self-protective, self-defensive stance in the face of feminism, he became reactionary. Hefner began his career as an advocate for social change, but that change kept happening. In a pattern we see repeated throughout history, the radical became the reactionary. Despite calling himself pro-woman and even making big donations to support causes like abortion access, Hefner declares war on feminism. That's coming up. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters, and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. For years, Hefner has become increasingly worried about the feminist movement. In 1970, some seven years after Steinem's expose, Playboy was getting ready to publish its first ever article by a woman. When a draft of that article comes in, a memo is leaked from Hefner. He's very upset that the story, by Susan Browdy, neutrally reports on the facts of the feminist movement. In the note, Hefner demands that Playboy aggressively tear down feminists, whom he saw as a major threat to his philosophy, lifestyle, and, very possibly, his bank account. 
These chicks are our natural enemy. It is time to do battle with them. What I want is a devastating piece that takes the militant feminists apart. I think that he was not wrong um, to see feminism as a threat. This is one of those so-called militant feminists, Diane Crothers. I think we saw Playboy as a way that women were distanced from their own bodies, a way that women have become judges of their own bodies. You still hear women say today, I hate my thighs, I hate my this, I hate my that. You know, all of that was encouraged by the uh, focus of a, of a Playboy. Diane spent her days fighting for justice-minded causes, but discovered that even these communities weren't equal. In 1969, Diane was taking part in a demonstration against the Vietnam War in Washington, D.C. Another respected woman with solid progressive credentials was getting ready to address the rally. And so when she got up to speak, the crowd said, take her off the stage and fuck her. So there would be moments like that when you would be reduced to your body and what you could do to entertain men. There are women who belonged to the freedom movement until they found that they were expected to make coffee, not policy. I was ignored, objectified, or attempted to be sexually used. And I wasn't the only one, and we didn't have a language for it at that time. So Diane joined a new group where women could gather together and just talk. So you might talk about men, sex, children, work, abortion, whatever. And you found out all these things about women's lives as a group by doing this. And then some of us who were in that group didn't want to just sit in a room and talk about this and think about this, but wanted to build an action component. So we began New York Radical Feminists. A new movement for women's liberation is launched, and once again protesters take to the street to support their demands for total freedom, economically, politically, socially. Where the first wave of feminism was all about securing basic liberties, like the rights to own property and vote, the second wave of feminism was about building on those victories socially, professionally, and personally. We hope that one day a woman will be able to choose whether she wants to stay home and take care of her husband and children, and also be paid for it, recognized for it, and get social security and all the other benefits that go along with working, because she is a laborer. Second waivers critiqued marriage, decried rape and sexual violence, and generally pushed back on the idea of subservience to men. Women were demanding change, but just as women aren't a monolith, the feminist movement wasn't one either. Diane says that at that time, there were several schools of thought in second wave feminism. One was represented by the National Organization for Women. And they wanted all the things that we wanted, many of them, equal pay, abortion, um, integration essentially into the opportunity structure. And then there were socialist feminists as well who thought that once we had a socialist revolution, women would be fine. But many of us had worked in new left groups, socialist groups, and we didn't think women were treated all that well by the boys. Then there was Diane's group. They described themselves as radical feminists. But radical feminism was really about changing the family, changing sex roles, changing the ideas of what is a woman. 
what is a man, and we tried to go to the root. That's why we use the word radical. At that time, what we were trying to do was just imagine a future that women could breathe in, could live in. And it was beyond equality. It was a real freedom for women paradigm. When Hefner's memo was leaked, the one referring to these feminist groups as chicks, a popular talk show host named Dick Cavett invited him onto his TV show to debate two members of the women's liberation movement, Susan Brownmiller and Sally Kempton. Hugh Hefner is my enemy. Oh, is Hef your enemy? Uh, we really set you up tonight, didn't we? <laughs> Susan and Sally went on, and the ratings went up on the Dick Cavett Show. And so the Cavett Show wanted a repeat. So they came to our meeting one night, and Holly and I were willing to do it. Diane says that she and her comrades have far more important things to think about than Hefner's attitude toward women. I can't remember that we ever spent two minutes talking about Hugh Hefner. Nevertheless, Diane sees real value in going on Dick Cavett's show. It's a chance to reach a nationwide audience of women. Who will write these incredible letters after any of these shows, who will say, I live in this little town in Illinois, I thought I was the only one. So you're just trying to give her hope and get her connected to other women. So Diane and Holly Tannen, another woman from the movement, agree to debate Hefner. The show is taped in a studio in downtown New York. The day of the, uh, the taping, I got stuck in traffic in this cab. And uh, when I got there, I'm late, I'm smoking, and I run downstairs to the makeup room. And um, as close as you are to me is Hugh Hefner. Right in front of her is the man she's come to argue with. And so I bolted and I ran back upstairs I mean, I am 23 years old. This is a bit much. Seeing Hefner brings up memories of bad run-ins Diane has had with older men. Because of them grabbing me and kissing me, or telling me I have a beautiful soul, or asking me out, or all these things. So that all, I think, got triggered. But as she's making her escape, she pauses. And so then I only ran halfway up, and I thought, okay, you can do this. Just turn around, go back. So I went back, and we chit-chatted over our makeup, and then we, I went on the show. With Hugh Hefner, sex educator Dr. Mary Calderon, Holly Tannen and Diane Crothers from the Women's Liberation Movement. They start rolling, and Dick Cavett speaks to Hugh Hefner for a while on his own. See, I'm very much for female emancipation. I want to make that distinction. What I'm against is militant women's live, which I find anti-feminine um, and anti-sexual. Before introducing the next guests... Will you welcome, please, Holly Tannen and Diane Crothers. They spar with Hefner. The thing that's most offensive about the whole Playboy philosophy is that women are presented as mindless sex objects. They're presented as completely incapable of independence, of a life outside of a man... They go back. You know, I just think exploit is an unfortunate word. Playboy exploits sex like Sports Illustrated exploits sports. It's the area that we're interested in. And fourth. What your magazine is doing is saying that the sexual revolution was also in the name of women. And yes, that is I think sexual false. emancipation and female okay, emancipation I know go you hand think in hand. That. The truth <laughs> is that many women, before the sexual revolution, men, women had no freedom to like sex. That's and right. now, all the time, women have to like sex. Women have to be available to any man who cares to go to bed with them. Hefner argues that, surely, 
there are more important things to worry about than his depictions of women and sex. At this time when our society is coming apart, that the same women who are involved in this could be doing things that need to be done if, if this society is to be saved. In the whole history of the feminist movement, in the old feminist movement, this was often brought up to get women away from their proper role as fighting for their own rights. Every single time women get together, these pressing issues come up. It's either abolition... The way that I was responding to it was, again, to go back, look at political movements, look at the 19th century, look at abolition, look at anti-war, and also rely on my own experience in these movements um, where uh, women are still being, uh, being abused, being sexually violated, and they're supposed to get out the next morning and register voters or whatever they're supposed to do. What the viewer can't see when watching the tape is that there were bunnies in the crowd from Hefner's clubs in full uniform. This was a visual message from Hefner. Women are on my side, too. And there were other women in the audience who didn't think that Diane and Holly were going far enough. Making money is dirty somehow. And if you mix... The night before the taping, some women called both Holly and me individually and asked if we would put it to Hefner that he should create a fund for reparations for his objectification and commodification of women's bodies for women to be able to get abortions. And both Holly and I said no, because in my view, he could just say yes, and there was no enforceability to that. So... That's how we ended up on stage, knowing that there were some women in the women's movement who weren't happy with us. Okay, listen, we're going to toss out anybody who yells from now on, and you're going to be the first. The feminist movement couldn't totally agree on what it wanted or how to get it. Does that sound familiar? In fact, a lot of this show that aired 50 years ago still resonates with me. These are not battles that are going to be won in a generation. Although we have made significant strides, childcare has not moved a dime in some ways. And so you have the pandemic and you have all these mothers giving up their jobs because they can't be in two places at once. Who really cares if women have to give up jobs? It makes them more dependent on men. Or it makes them poor, or both. For those who do hold on to their jobs, workplace mistreatment is still rampant. Some reports about labor abuse indicate it's getting worse. Poor, Black, trans, and Indigenous women are economically and socially disadvantaged in myriad ways, from the food they eat, to the health care they receive, to their access to education, and yes, childcare. With a mind to these issues, Diane kept pushing for progress within a long career as a civil rights lawyer. But what does she feel on a personal level, looking back at this encounter with Hefner? One of the things that it did as an opportunity for someone like me is that then years later, when I am litigating and I am making arguments that that judge does not want to hear, I can go point, 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 and I can get screamed at by judges, which I was, judge yelling, Miss Crothers, don't spin the court, etc. And then you've had an experience like this on national television where you've taken on one of the most powerful image makers in the world, really. And it changes you. It makes you think, I can do this. You know, and I'm just going to keep on and we're going to get further than we are now. So where does all of this leave our picture of Hefner? 
He was at the vanguard of social change. He championed some progressive values and fought for a number of causes. But it's hard to untangle his positive contributions from his position as an astute businessman. He exploited sex and race to sell magazines and, even more important to him, to feel good about his higher purpose as a person. In tapping into a changing nation, he found the perfect strategy for characterizing his lifestyle and approach to women and sex as noble, important, and necessary. Hefner didn't cause reform, but he was certainly able to ride it. To overly credit him for changing things that were already changing is to ignore the people who were really making those advancements happen. People like Walter Lowe, Diane Crothers, Jackie Nett, and Jeannie Bell. Here's Walter Lowe again. Hefner was symptomatic of the era that brought him and Playboy into prominence. Just as, and I certainly am not comparing the character of the two men, just the same as Donald Trump is symptomatic of a wave of sentiment that has unfortunately swept through large segments of the American population today. One day we will look back and say, who the hell was Donald Trump? Donald Trump was a reflection of America at the time that Donald Trump emerged. Hugh Hefner was a reflection of America at the time that Playboy emerged. In the aftermath of this battle on The Dick Cavett Show, Hefner doubles down. It's a full-on, full frontal. In other words, I wasn't showing my bottom. And soon after all this, Playboy is caught between a conservative backlash These aspects of sexual culture, like Playboy, were seen as being enemies of the state. And an aggressive new rival. I knew then and there with that first issue that I'd come to America with it and that I would do battle with Playboy. That's all coming up on Power, Hugh Hefner, and the Rise and Fall of Playboy. If you want to hear more from the women I'm talking to for this series, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. This week, you'll find an extended cut of my conversation with Diane Crothers. There was so much more I loved getting to know about Diane's life. What drew her into radicalism? What it was like to stage sit-ins to take over magazine offices? And basically, how to feel activated and still have fun within a serious movement? If you're an Apple Podcast subscriber, you'll also be able to hear ad-free episodes every week. All right, and here are the people who made our show. Power Hugh Hefner is a Something Else production. It's hosted by me, Amy Rose Spiegel. The series producer is Dave Anderson, and the producers are Georgia Mills, Chica Ayers, and Paul Smith. Our associate producer is Millie Chu. Mixing and sound design come from Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Mira Sharma and Peggy Sutton are the editors. The executive producer is Peggy Sutton. With thanks to Jen Mystery, Ike Egbatola, Mia Warren, Grant Irving, Lily Hambly, Gulliver Lawrence Tickle, Siobhan Donnelly, Jez Nelson, and Leanne Richardson. If you like the show, 
Head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Leave a rating while you're there. It really helps new listeners find the show. 